0: Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe. My guest today will be Lindsay Shepherd Cook, a visiting assistant professor of art here at Vassar College and also a Vassar alumna. Lindsay is here for a return visit to the Library Cafe and to cap off our final show this spring uh, to talk about her translation of Notre Dame Cathedral, Nine Centuries of History authored by Danny Sandron, professor of art and architecture at the Sorbonne in Paris, and co-authored by our late colleague in the art department here, Andrew Tallon, whom Lindsay studied with before she went off to Columbia to work with Stephen Murray to complete her own doctorate in medieval architecture. The publication originally came out in French, but it's now out in an English edition, thanks to Lindsay from the Pennsylvania State University Press, And Lindsay is talking with us by telephone today, since we're all holed up with the pandemic outside. Hello, Lindsay.
1: Hello, Tom. Great to be with you.
0: I wanted to talk before we get into the book, just to talk about your background and the history of your relationship with medieval architecture. I'm a medievalist myself, of course, and it's always seemed to me that the academy, a bit like a cathedral, is something of a medieval institution in itself. It's a world, in other words, to a great extent, based on apprenticeship, which is manifested in fellowships and direct influence in the imparting of learning and expertise. I mean, it isn't for nothing that the combined medieval programs at Columbia were referred to as the medieval guild. It is a kind of guild, the the academy. So first question is about our late friend Andrew Tallon, one of the authors of this book and the person you studied with when you were an undergraduate here at Vassar. Can you tell us about Andrew and your relationship with him and his influence as a mentor and about your training in general Then, as you went on to Columbia?
1: Yes, absolutely. So Andrew arrived at Vassar in 2007. Mm-hmm. And I, at that point, I was a sophomore and in fact had already fallen in love with medieval art and architecture, and specifically Byzantine art and architecture, thanks to the wonderful Sarah Brooks, who Uh had been visiting that year. And I remember first going to the Metropolitan Museum with her and going through the medieval galleries, and she brought us there, and it felt like privileged access, even though I now realize you could go at any time and spend a dollar and, Mm -hmm. and wander through those great halls on your own. So that was really my entry into medieval studies was through her initially. And so, in fact, when she left Vassar, I was extremely sad. I was very disappointed. Oh. And yet, I signed up. I think I was already enrolled in medieval architecture the following semester. So that would have been Andrew's first semester at Vassar. And I resisted him a little bit at first, I think, for this reason, because I was sad about losing a teacher that I had loved. But oh. he, of course, grew on me. Um, I warmed <sighs> him pretty quickly thereafter. And... I think part of this, I was maybe a sort of prime target for what he taught because I grew up on the campus of the University of Chicago, which Uh is itself a collegiate Gothic institution. And I came to recognize a lot of what I knew as just being my surroundings growing up in the architecture that he was teaching us about in Taylor Hall. Uh So I think that was part of the initial sort of spark came from a sort of sense of recognition in what he was teaching. But then from there, I mean, he became such an important mentor to me, and especially his course on Schacht Cathedral, which he taught Uh my senior year, was incredibly important in the sense that we saw this world that you could go in so many different directions Uh um, with the study of Gothic architecture, and that's what I recognized in that course. We would have different students in the class, or many students in the class, and each one would have to sort of follow in the footsteps of an individual scholar, and you would Mm -hmm. see that there were many different ways to understand the medieval building. Mm -hmm. So it could be from a technical standpoint, it could be from uh, the standpoint of mysticism or numerology, Mm -hmm. there were many different versions of the cathedral. And so I think that was particularly compelling, there was not just one way to go about the study of Gothic architecture. So from there, I was wondering what to do after graduation, and luckily, that was still a point where the program Mapping Gothic France was occurring. And so as a senior, I had a pretty good chance, I hoped, with a French background as well, of applying to that program and getting to travel to France to start my work as a medievalist in earnest. Although at that point, I still hadn't decided that I would go on to graduate school. It was really that experience of traveling through Burgundy, taking photographs to make panoramas, Hmm. that I really fell in love with the study of Gothic architecture as it existed at that time. So that was extremely influential, that moment, and spending a month with not only professors, but also with graduate students to understand that this might be something that I might like to do myself. Uh-huh. So it, he was a transformative figure in that sense, and I'm glad that I fell in with him for one reason or another. Yeah.
0: The thing about studying anything medieval is you have to cross disciplines. I mean, you can't just study yeah. in one discipline. Everything impinges on everything else, and it demands a kind of encyclopedic view of the world, the way a cathedral is encyclopedic, especially if you're studying architecture and then you get these figures scholars in the fields who are encyclopedic themselves I mean Andrew had all kinds of talents that didn't directly have to do with his understanding of medieval architecture, but they float out of that, like his interest in music, in acoustics, mm-hmm. and, you know, I've noticed that with other people, too. A deep part of people that are attracted to the Middle Ages is often a spiritualism and religion, history, of course, uh, language.
1: And you feel as if there's always something more to learn. Oh, I yeah. think that's the other, <laughs> other piece of it, is that, yeah. like any medieval institution, the same would happen, is that actually people could be highly specialized, but there's some sense that medievalists have that you actually have to take on all of these roles and understand each and every one of them. So yeah. there's always something more to learn.
0: Yeah, And then, of course, what I was going to ask about this, the academy itself is a medieval institution, isn't it? I mean, not just in the way we come to do apprenticeships and come to learn under mentors, but, you know, the development of the liberal arts in the form that we know them, uh, mm-hmm. all of that. So you feel like you're studying something you know, as you did with Chicago there, I suppose, coming from Chicago there. that I
1: think that's yeah. true. And there, there's also a way that, and maybe we'll get to this later, but where even individual terms or positions that we know of in the university today came initially from the context of the cathedral. Uh-huh. So things like deans and the like, those are uh-huh. the chancellor. These are yeah. either royal positions and or cathedral positions yeah. as well, in the clergy.
0: Department chairs, of course, you know. Um, yes, so yes, you know. of course. So then you got your Ph.D. and Andrew became ill with a brain tumor and he became ill during the semester uh, toward the end there and we were really without anybody to finish his class. And you happily came and really rescued us. I remember the chair at the time, Brian Lucasia, was just so pleased, I think Brian was chair, that he was able to find somebody to pick up where Andrew wasn't able to continue anymore. And then you became a beloved teacher yourself, packing your classrooms with eager, budding medievalists the way Andrew did. So can you talk about that, what it was like to teach students yourself and become a mentor yourself in this system of mentoring?
1: Well, it's been been the most... Touching part about coming back to Vassar, especially under these really unfortunate, tragic circumstances, was to find new students, a whole new generation of students who have different desires and ideologies and interests than those in my generation did, and yet who are still so hungry for knowledge. And I know, I remember a time in, I don't remember what cathedral we were in, maybe Strasbourg. And I remember Andrew telling me, and the other bachelor student who was there with me that summer, that we were like sponges, that we were in this period where our brains were like sponges. Mm. And I remember that sounded sort of creepy at the time, but I now completely understand what Mm. he means Uh because I've been lucky enough to have students that were just the same way, where Mm. they really pick up on things so quickly and also just have a Mm. desire to know more and more and more. And that's certainly been my experience. It's been great to not only encounter seniors on their way out and figuring out what they're trying to do with their lives, but also i particularly enjoyed teaching in Art 105 and 106 uh-huh. and encountering lots of first-year students, and also first-year students who will probably go on to study art history, but also um, seniors who have never taken an art history course before, uh-huh. and that this is something that they've thought was important enough to do before they left, you know, uh-huh. and ran out the doors into the rest of their lives. So I've really enjoyed all parts of that, seeing different students at different stages of their academic development and sort of personal and social development as well. So it's been a real pleasure.
0: So uh, how did you get to Notre Dame? And Mm -hmm. can you talk a bit about that? And also the Mapping Gothic France project, which is a big part of what Andrew was interested in for a long, long time. Um,
1: (laughs) And me too. (laughs) Um, I'd say my own work with Notre Dame actually began through Mapping Gothic France Uh in 2011. So this was the second year of the program that I was a part of. It had been going on already for several years. So usually it was seniors at Vassar who would get to go, although there were some exceptions, important exceptions to that rule. And so there had been a few cohorts before me. Then I was there in 2010. We traveled around Burgundy, and we went to just dozens of places. We would usually visit more than one building in a day. And it was not just a cursory tourist Visit of any of these places. Mm-hmm. And different individuals would have different jobs when we went to the churches and cathedrals, and that would entail, let's say, laser measuring the building to see, you know, to capture the height of the building and also the central nave and of the aisles, the width of buildings, et cetera. Others would be responsible for really high resolution telephoto photography so that mm-hmm. you could find details and have sculptural details captured on the website. And I was responsible with my fellow Vassar student, hani Chabasheva. We were responsible for the panorama photography uh-huh. in Burgundy. Uh-huh. And so that was, again, a really formative moment. But it was not until the following year. At that point, I had already been accepted to Columbia. So I knew it would be continuing with my studies in medieval architecture. And that happened to be the year that we went to Paris. Mm-hmm. So it was in the Ile-de-France and including Paris. Most of the time, as I said, we would travel to multiple sites in a day, but this was a real exception, going to Notre Dame. Mm. So we actually spent a full day in the cathedral, climbing up and down the Western Towers, we into the tribune. We were um, sclaving along the buttresses mm-hmm. outside um, with the buttresses overhead and looking out with Paris sort of unfolding in every direction around us. But again, it wasn't just a moment of awe um, at this position of the cathedral in the city, although that was an important piece of it. It was also to start to really understand this structure in a new way. From the vantage point in the tribune, for instance, you could see differences in the masonry, for instance, in the vaults where you could start to get a sense for which parts of this building were actually built in the Middle Ages mm-hmm. and which parts were transformed dramatically in the nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. And so I do remember that moment and certainly with Andrew's encouragement of, you know, which which of these things is not like the other. Mm-hmm. And so trying to starting to get a real archaeological understanding of the structure at that time. So mm-hmm. that was a part of the spark of that summer. But there was another important piece of it for me, which was visiting smaller churches on the periphery of Paris. Mm-hmm some of which look a little bit like Notre Dame. And that ultimately became my dissertation topic, but it was right there, it was before I even set foot in a Columbia classroom that I started to formulate that topic with Uh Stephen Murray. Uh And so that continues to be something that really drives my interest in Notre Dame, Uh comes from understanding how other Master Masons, especially in much more sort of constrained circumstances where finances were much tighter, how they came to express, capture the monumentality, and the splendor of Notre Dame through much, much smaller and more modest buildings.
0: Uh I wonder about the book, then. Your bit in here mainly is that you did the translation, and I'm wondering about how the book was conceived, how did it get designed and written. It's a beautiful book, I should say, wonderful, wonderful illustrations, and really nicely organized as a learning tool. So was it conceived for
1: a general audience, Absolutely. So especially in France, it's on sale all over the place. It's Uh really not there, primarily an academic book at all. So you'll Uh find it in bookshops around Paris. You'll find it in museum shops as well. So I remember when it first came out, I remember seeing it in the Louvre gift shop and sending Uh an image of it to Andrew. Uh In any case, that's certainly the audience there is for a more general reading public. In the version that we've created here, I think certainly when I translated the book, the audience I had in mind... It was my own students. And Mm -hmm. so I imagined, um, especially the undergraduate student making a lot out of this. And I had the good fortune. I had already done the translation before I taught my seminar on Notre Mm -hmm. Dame last semester in the fall of 2019. And so I was able to use the text that, you know, was still at that point. It was in the proof stage. Mm -hmm. I got to use the text with my students and I was really happy to see that it worked in that setting, Mm -hmm. um, that they really were able to absorb a lot of this material, which is otherwise, I mean, in other presentations and certainly in other languages, because you have to read many languages to really understand these kinds of buildings, to be able to, through an English text, capture the essence of this building Mm -hmm. is really says something about its quality. So it certainly is effective in that. So I hope that not only undergraduate students, but also graduate students who don't have French Uh and the non-specialists in general. So if you're an art historian who isn't a specialist on Gothic architecture, this will still have a place. But it is a synthesis. It's providing... New information in some senses, but largely this material is available elsewhere, but is now packaged in a very particularly readable way. That's the idea. Yeah,
0: a lot of visual information in it that you absorb as soon as you start paging through it. Even if you don't read the text, honestly, you can see how the building progresses over the centuries really nicely. I mean, it's really wonderfully illustrated. And, and this is
1: a key contribution to the book as well, is the illustrations themselves. Uh-huh. So underneath every single illustration, I think what you're talking about mostly are the hypothetical reconstructions, uh-huh. historical reconstructions. Yeah. And those are created, it was, they were made by an illustrator who used as the basis underneath all of the sort of textures that do look like the building as we would think about it in space. Mm-hmm. underneath all of that is a cloud of data. So the 2010 laser scan that Andrew commissioned, uh-huh. that is at the heart of all of those reconstructions. Uh-huh. So there's a way, there's a kind of ambivalence about, the, of the, about these images because on the one hand, they're very accurate and uh-huh. do give you a sense of the way the building actually is on the ground today. And on the other hand, they're also trying to recreate parts of the building that are they're irretrievably lost in some sense. Uh, because as the building has changed, we do lose evidence for earlier states of the building. Yeah.
0: Well, that's great, though. I mean, it gives you a conceptual idea of the building uh, that you can't see anymore. Exactly. And it is, then, interestingly, in this case, the images are part of a scholarship that is showing you something new about the building, right? And they're researched, uh, researched from the building itself and the scans that were done, but also, I I think, researched otherwise.
1: Certainly, and through... um, archaeological evidence, historical evidence. We have it's sort of piecing together together everything that we know at this point about the building. Mm-hmm. Of course it's still the viewpoint of the two authors, so mm-hmm. there are differing views out there about mm-hmm. certain choices that are made in these reconstructions, but ultimately that's the way historians have to operate.
0: So your overall schema here is chronological. You know, you go through the years starting in 1163, which is a good starting date, although there were buildings on the site before then, including certainly a basilica. So why 1163, and and can you talk about what was there earlier on and what remains of those original structures?
1: 1163. In my version of this book, all of the hypothetical reconstructions would have said circa circa 1163, circa 1177, etc. In the sense that 1163, by this point, certainly the cathedral was already well underway. Uh So this is Uh really mostly through documentation, through textual evidence that these particular dates are selected. Uh So by that point, we do have a sort of foundation date for the cathedral, but we know that by that point, foundations certainly would have been dug already. So it's in that case, the state of the building doesn't exactly reflect what it would have looked like in in 1163, but okay, if this is the kind of customary starting point in 1163, you would have had the idea of the building already really would have been conceived by that point by a master mason whose name we don't know Mm -hmm. at that point. And it would have replaced, the new Gothic building would have been on a scale much, much grander than the building that preceded it. So especially the basilica that you were talking about, Mm -hmm. that would have been positioned west of the current building that we now know. Mm -hmm. And it would have been much smaller, of Mm -hmm. course. So this is really a building on a much grander scale and also essentially consolidating lots of smaller edifices that once dotted this whole complex. Mm -hmm. And instead making this building, the cathedral, the central structure. Those smaller churches weren't actually destroyed, so some of them did survive for a long period of time, including a in baptistry next to the cathedral. But it changed the relationship of basilica to those smaller structures for mm-hmm. sure, in terms of the sort of architectural makeup of the cathedral complex. Yeah.
0: Was one of the uh, the tympana on one of the older buildings transported wholesale into the new cathedral? Did I get that right?
2: That's right. right.
1: So yeah. there's a, a bit of a question about that mid-12th century sculpture, but uh-huh. you can still find it on the uh, St. Anne portal, the south uh-huh. portal uh-huh. of the Western frontispiece. And there's a question in the sense that, was it actually installed on the previous building? Was it created and then never installed? Uh-huh. But the the idea in this book, at least as it's presented, is it's probably from the previous basilica, which would have been completed, that mm-hmm. it would have adored the previous basilica and was then transferred almost in a way of sort of activating or legitimizing the new cathedral in a certain way. There's particular iconography, especially on the tympanum of that particular portal. It seems to suggest that it was a very meaningful choice to have transported it from Uh the old building to the new, if that is in fact what happened. Uh
0: Church institutions, especially in Paris, there are places of worship, of course, and places also of political influence in this case, because the French crown is associated with the cathedral. But there are also places of learning, big times. So I wonder, does that influence the building program of Notre Dame in its early conception? I mean, you have a place where the liberal arts are being formulated, And you have tremendous strides in various disciplines, uh, especially in Paris, like the development of what we know of Western logic and mathematics. And uh, so I I wonder if the fact that cathedrals are places of learning, and actually they're places where schools develop, you know, the cathedral schools, Mm -hmm. and uh, precursors to the university, if that is somehow part of what is causing this structure to look and function the way it does.
1: It's interesting. It's hard, it's sort of hard to say if there is a a sort of one-to-one relationship between those, that particular function that the building had to serve and a particular architectural space in the cathedral proper. It had to serve not only that function, but as you say, many other administrative liturgical functions. And so part of the beauty of this building is that it's able to perform all of those functions all at once. And so you do have compartmentalized spaces. You have, for instance, the tribunes that are sort of separated out from the building. You have in the tower um, upper chapels, which also could have served as additional spaces. Mm -hmm. So You have lots of nooks and crannies that are really fully finished um, spaces, where certainly all of these activities would have taken place. Mm -hmm. In addition to the fact that they could have taken place also in sort of side buildings in the Canons Cloister, for instance, in the Bishop's Palace or near the Bishop's Palace, there were still other buildings outside the cathedral proper Mm -hmm. that could have served some of those functions as well.
0: And then in terms of the curriculum, there must be an influence of the quadrivium, I'm thinking, on what the Master Mason and, uh, and other people working on the materials, say, of the of the cathedral and the shape of the cathedral the mathematics that go into it. There must have been some kind of correspondence there. I mean, part of what makes the cathedral what it is has to do with its acoustical properties, also harmony, right? And obviously, these people are well-educated, um, mm-hmm. so... I, you know, I just wonder about the connection, but I guess you know you just all you can do is speculate.
1: It's true. I mean, certainly dynamic geometry is uh-huh. key to the underlying plan of the building, especially um, in terms of the materials that are used. Of course, I mean it makes a certain amount of sense. It's stone becomes so important Mm -hmm. and is so visible in the structure of the building, whereas on the other hand, something like iron, which is actually used in the structure of the building, but it's hidden Mm -hmm. away because it would have had associations more um, along the lines of, you know, with Vulcan and and Vulcan Forge. Uh So I think that's absolutely true that stone, which would have been more associated with the Peter, after all, having those kinds of close and important spiritual associations would have also had an impact on the structure itself. Uh
0: So, how does a building actually get planned and executed? I mean, who, who does what and, and what kind of organization? I mean, we just had an interview, one of the last interviews I conducted was with Nick Adams on uh, SOM. And, you know, he talked about for a modern skyscraper, all the g- groups of people with supervision of different kinds that go into making, you know, a modern building of any size. And there must have been something like this here. So, do we know? I mean, we know there was a master mason, but, you know, mm-hmm. were there teams of people? who worked on certain materials. And then, of course, part of this, you have to wonder, how was the building paid for?
1: Well, I would say, if anything, the book particularly stresses the importance of the bishop as Mm. a sort of overall, you know, a dominant administrator. Mm -hmm. And especially it makes quite a bit of Maurice de Soudis as a sort of founding bishop, founding figure here, who launched the project but i would say also and this isn't as present in the book although it is to some extent the chapter is certainly discussed i would say the bishop did not act alone and and this certainly fits in with what nick was describing about som mm-hmm. so additional clerical and lay administrators worked with the master mason and with artisans so you were talking about sort of did they have specialized skills mm-hmm. absolutely yeah. um, there were artisans working in many different media and they would work together then to realize the cathedral. So this is ultimately has to be a collaboration. So as much as any individual might have their own self-interest, ultimately you had to get it together on one in one way or another in order to bring this all together. And the question of how did they pay for it? Well, both ecclesiastical and lay donations uh, would have financed the construction. And to be sure, bishops committed lofty sums. So it's it's not unfair to say that the bishop had an important role to play. But So, too, did many of the members of the cathedral chapter, including the dean, who was the head of the cathedral chapter. So I mentioned that word dean earlier. The dean, in the case of Notre Dame, would have been the head of the cathedral chapter. So a very important cathedral dignitary.
0: So there's an organization in the clergy, I mean, apart from the organization Mm -hmm. that you would need to build a cathedral, and that's part of what the cathedral's about here, especially early on, isn't it? You have a group of canons. um. So can you talk about that a little bit, just how the church is organized within the cathedral?
1: Yes. So Notre Dame, as an institution, if you think about it not as a building for a moment, but as an institution, It was governed by a body known as the cathedral chapter, and that was made up, the chapter was made up of individuals known as canons. Mm -hmm. In this case, they were secular canons, meaning that they were not part of a religious order, Uh and the canons would then elect the dean, so the head of the chapter. They would elect their representative, and he would serve as the head of the chapter, but Mm -hmm. they would also elect the bishop. Uh So the bishop then had tremendous authority, And he would then, in turn, he would be responsible for appointing most of the other dignitaries, Mm -hmm. so including the cantor, who's responsible for the the liturgy, the archdeacons, who were largely responsible for paying visits to surrounding parishes all over the Ile-de-France and another administrator known as the chancellor. Uh So again, some of those titles should sound familiar. Some, you know, I know the University of Illinois, where uh, Chicago, where I'm from, is headed by a chancellor. Uh Um, This is Uh certainly the case Uh at at many public institutions. So Uh some of these things may sound familiar, even to modern ears.
0: So there's a hierarchy then, right? Uh, as there is in a university, you know, a hierarchy within the clergy. And so the question is: Is that expressed in any way in the building? I mean, there are, are there more important, say, places to sit, <laughs> you know,
2: yeah. uh,
0: for more important people, or um, is, is power Absolutely. reflected yeah. in some way here?
1: I'd Uh say that's where it is. It's in the choir Uh that you find this more than anywhere else. And the medieval choir stalls don't survive at Notre Dame of Paris. They were changed later on in Uh later centuries. Mm -hmm. But we do have an image, a wonderful 17th century image of the medieval version of the choir stalls. Uh And there you can see, as is the case of some other choir stalls that do remain like the ones at Amiens Cathedral, for instance, Mm -hmm. there would have been two rows, basically two levels of choir stalls. And those that were higher and really just by a couple of steps, we're talking about a really negligible height difference, but the ones that were just a little bit more elevated than the others would have been for uh, members of for instance, all of these dignitaries I was just talking about, uh-huh. they would have sat in those stalls and not the ones lower down. So there was a sense, that that's one of the ways that the hierarchy was expressed through the architecture of the choir.
0: So we start out in 1163, and then another benchmark here is 1177, and I wonder mm-hmm. what's happened by 1177. And I also wonder about the way the building is taking shape here. I mean, are there models that the master architect's using at all for the forms that are, are being invented here to some extent? Mm-hmm. Is the building actually very innovative at this juncture? Do we know anything about these architects?
1: Right. By 1177, a textual source, so again, it's a a text that we point Uh to to come up with that date. It suggests that the whole east end of the building, which is known as the Uh chevet, was complete, was virtually complete, except for the stone vault up above. So this might sound a little bit strange. You know, you say it was almost complete, except Except for the thing that encloses the space, right? A big if but and from the outside though what that means is that the east end would have looked completely finished uh-huh. because the wooden roof was already in place uh-huh. so this is something uh-huh. that hints at the fact that these two elements are independent uh-huh. of one another yeah. so the wooden roof would have already been built and then eventually they would have added the the, the stone vaults the down vault. below uh-huh. Exactly. So the building certainly also, there's a a sort of series of references that are being made here. And it looked to some contemporary buildings in France, there was a way that it was trying to sort of outpace other buildings in other places. So we might think of buildings like saint Louis or Saint-Cathedrals, which were predecessors in that way. Although tellingly, Notre Dame of Paris surpasses both of them in height. So this is also that Uh period of Gothic Uh architecture where there does seem to be a sort of quest for height and competition, rivalry between different places. And the building also, in addition to looking to its neighbors, was also looking farther afield and looking farther back in time as Uh well. So for instance, like St. Peter's in Rome, Notre Dame has a five-aisled plan which is actually not found in every single cathedral put up at this time. So it does seem to be an intentional choice in that way. And also it supports at the arcade level and the choir, especially, their historicizing columns. So they would have looked kind of classical. And even though, of course, they don't quite follow the canonical orders, we can't say completely that they're Corinthian columns. But that is definitely the reference, the historical reference that seems to be made by the choice of choosing a sort of columnar shape instead uh-huh. of, let's say, oh, a compound pier. Yeah.
0: Oh, interesting. Are there influences from other cultures here? I mean, this is out of left field, but I often mm-hmm. wondered this, say, Islamic influences or Byzantine influences.
1: Of course. It yeah. seems pretty clear that the, point, the use of the pointed arch, the fact that it, especially because of when it emerges, in France especially, in uh-huh. Western Europe in general, it does seem to be really deeply connected certainly to Islam. And uh-huh. so that seems to be exactly where it comes from. Uh, um, and so you're right to draw that connection, uh-huh. um, particularly in this, in this very period. Uh-huh. It's exactly it's spot on.
0: Interesting. So then, say, we skip ahead a few years. So the building's been going up for half a century by 1208, another benchmark. The choir's up, the transepts are up, and things are moving along. And I think the building's actually being used, the choir is anyway, so what do we have here at this point? I mean, um, uh, what sort of liturgy is taking place, I guess? And and, and the artistic oh, sorry, program, ahead. too. I just just wondered about that, along with the uh, liturgy.
1: So at this point, a wall was actually constructed, a sort of provisional wall was constructed to enclose the, the choir so mm-hmm. that it could be used for the liturgy and dedicated to the liturgy. And so, of course, it ne- the liturgy never stopped, right? Yeah. So even at a point when they would have been having to still use the old building, having to use... Uh, this building as it was being put up to, you can imagine that the liturgy would have continued. So there is a sense of sort of an uninterrupted chain of the liturgy, but on the other hand, at this point, moving into this, this grand new structure. Mm. Interestingly, people who were maybe the most closely connected to the liturgy were not really on board, or at least one very famous example was not on board uh-huh. with this dramatic new uh-huh. campaign. So that is, I'm thinking of Peter the Chanter. Uh-huh. And he, it's a, it's a kind of classic argument that we might think back to the sort of Cistercian versus Benedictine uh-huh. dispute of earlier times in the sense that he says, why aren't we spending more of our finances on charity uh-huh. rather uh-huh. than this monumental building campaign? But I think there's a bit of self-interest here to think about as well, yeah. which is if your place of worship is going to be radically transformed, it's going to be loud. A construction site is, has ever been extremely loud and, and troublesome, uh-huh. and so that uh-huh. would have presented a challenge to the liturgy unfolding uh-huh. in the old yeah. church and, and, again, in the new cathedral as well. So part of the reason that the cathedral, the new cathedral, the Gothic cathedral, was started at the east end had to do with the desire to reinstate uh, the clergy and put them in their stalls as quickly as possible. Oh, that's interesting. So this is part of the reason that they start with the east end and not at the west end, where uh, the portals uh, are. Okay.
0: Interesting, because we started our conversation before we went on the air. We were talking about all the noise being made out in the street where you are there by construction of a uh, water main and, uh, and, that's right. and, and in New York. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> it is <laughs> noisy. <that> yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, so, we move along a few more years. 1220, the uh, nave is finished, so the cathedral starting to look like, you know, a full fledged thing. Until 1208, basically, you've just got the top of the cross, you know, the transepts and, and the mm-hmm. choir, but then, you know, the nave, the long part of the church coming out toward the West End is constructed by 1220. And then there's a sculptural program that's really coming on strong here. And can you talk about that, the way sculpture functions in terms of how the church is being used, both as it's seen by, you know, the general populace of Paris, but Mm -hmm. but also how how it's seen from the people who are actually using the church within?
1: Yes. So I think this is, almost a billboard for the cathedral for mm-hmm. the outside world. I uh-huh. think it is significant, and it's, it's definitely been noted in scholarship that the program on the western end of the building, so these mm. three great portals that we still see even, even right now as there are tents established to sort of clean up after the fire of Mm -hmm. 2019, and so most of the plaza is closed off, but still people come to the plaza, flock to the plaza, and try to get as close as possible to those west portals. And they're really the most inviting parts of the building, and they're also the most accessible in terms of their iconography. So there's a kind of multi layered sense here where, of course, the portals were also very important to processions Mm -hmm. and to the very erudite clerical audience. They would have, you might have emphasized certain elements of the iconography, but there's also more sort of universal stories that are being told, Uh especially in those three west portals. And so there would be um, a sense of even the layperson, even as it's been said, the illiterate layperson mm-hmm. who can't read the Bible and might still be able to understand some of these stories through mm-hmm. the imagery that you find on the West End. So it is the most accessible. There are, is much more arcane iconography on, let's say, the South Transept facade, where mm-hmm. there you find that, that would have been, only the canons would have had access to that portal. Uh-huh. And so you can imagine that on the other hand, on the other end of the spectrum, like, you have these Tales that are really being presented to the canons themselves and yeah. not to the general public,
2: yeah,
0: not so much emphasis on hell there than for the canons uh, as there is on the on the west in, um,
1: side. yeah, <laughs> it's much in a much different way exactly in in the sense of okay it's it's not as much of a dialectic that's set yeah. up you know, there's uh, either heaven or hell yeah. it's a much more complex story in the case it's the Theophilus narrative uh-huh. in the sense of right that it's sort of a, a Southian bargain that uh-huh. is made. And you see, for instance, very specific references to charters, which would have been important to the canons themselves, And an agreement is made, and the way that agreement is made is very much in the same way that you would have uh, established an oath between a lord and a vassal, Uh right? So uh, the imagery there is even of clasped hands and hands placed Uh over those clasped hands. So in that way, it is, again, it's something that the elite would have recognized very clearly.
0: Yeah, I'm reminded of Ernst Bloch's books on feudalism there and how important that image is uh, in, in the whole feudal structure there. That's right. So you mentioned the fire of 2019, last April, which horrified the world. But that wasn't the cathedral's first fire, was it? I mean, there was a fire fairly early on in the 13th century.
1: That's right. At the very point when you would have thought that the building would have been complete, Uh essentially, or they were nearing completion. And you would have thought, oh, after all this time, they would have been so delighted to be done with this building. Mm -hmm. And to, as we were saying, right, to end the noise and and get to work, um, the sort of spiritual work of the cathedral. Well, what they do at that very moment is to completely rebuild the entire clear story. Uh And to rebuild the roof. The roof that was destroyed last year was a 13th century roof. And so the Question presents itself, well, why did that happen? Mm-hmm. And so you could start to point to very real factors. I mean, the cathedral is still a very dark building uh-huh. compared to yeah. other cathedrals because of its structure and especially the very deep tribunes that it has. Uh-huh. It's not, it's a very sort of sepulchral space still to this day. And so that could be part of this. But we know from the restoration architect who intervened yeah. in the 19th century, he found evidence of a fire. Mm-hmm. And so he made the argument, that the reason for this dramatic change was this fire that took place in the 13th century. Uh So we have to sort of take him at his word, but it certainly... Make sense. I mean we're about to we're on the process of doing a very similar maneuver yeah, exactly, in, in our yeah. own day. So we yeah. do recognize that this is a possibility. Yeah.
0: This brings up the fact that the building is subject to change through all its life, really. You know, it's built over a very long time. Even when it's finished, it's not finished. It's in a state of constant change in a way and renovation even while still being built up till at least twelve forty-five, which is a kind of nominal completion date. Although it goes on being changed. Changed long after that, so is this a part of changing tastes at all, or trends in the liturgy, or trends in mathematics and structural change? I mean, why is the building always being renovated?
1: It's a good question. I mean, for, there are multiple different reasons that this happens over time, but I think uh. it's the fundamental realization to make, and I think that the book makes really clearly and presents to the viewer through these illustrations, is the fact that Notre Dame is not although it kind of seems on the surface and certainly to the untrained eye would seem like a timeless structure we yes, hear this is uh-huh, sort of yeah. a cliche is uh-huh. that cathedrals are timeless but that really couldn't be farther from the truth this mm-hmm. building has changed again and again and again part of the reason i think it appears timeless is because one master mason working after the next is in some ways trying to make whatever they add to the building harmonized to fit in with what's already there. Mm -hmm. So there is a sense of decorum when it comes to construction from one generation to the next. But there will be, in some cases, radical stylistic change. And that's what's usually, I mean, at least easiest for the architectural historian or the student of architectural history to notice are those kinds of radical changes in tracery, for instance, in the building. And so this was often to keep up with, we talked about sort of the spirit of competition that Uh led to the initial design. And of course, it's not the last building to be built. So as, let's say, the Saint-Chapelle is constructed oh. across the Ile de la Cité, mm-hmm. what do you have to do? Well, you have to add massive new transept facades um, mm-hmm. to either side of the building, of the cathedral. Now, of course, that also takes place in a part of the building that it seems like there's some structural concern in that particular area. And we do know that proceeding from the original transept from the 12th century, Mm -hmm. after that, the nave is completely sort of out of whack. It's out of alignment. And so it it does seem likely also that there would have been some structural problems on the initial transept facade. Uh So we can't sort of rule that out. Structural concerns are always going to be sort of at root. They could lead to a major stylistic change. Mm -hmm. But the two do work hand in hand Mm -hmm. and sometimes stylistic, you know, the desire to update the building that in and of itself is enough. Uh, to lead to transformations to the building.
0: Yeah, your laser scans go a long way to helping us understand just what these shifts are and what these alignments are, aren't they? Because otherwise Mm -hmm. you wouldn't be able to measure them, uh, you know, not without hanging from the vaults with a tape measure.
1: That is particularly true when you're looking at the elevation Uh as well. It's less true when it comes to, because some of these things, like the misalignment of the piers in the nave, that is so extreme that you can actually see that with the naked eye in the building itself. So you can stand in front of one pier, look across the nave width-wise, and you would expect, right, to see a pier opposite you, and instead you see empty space. You know, you don't expect (laughs) to see a void across the way. But you're absolutely right that getting a kind of an accurate view of the entire building all at once there's nothing that can do that quite like a laser scan yeah. that's
0: got to be important with the reconstruction and the repair after the fire i would think because the roof kind of holds the building in place to some extent doesn't it so just to know exactly you know where you're tilting and where things might be a little hinky uh, i mean it seems to be important
1: certainly yeah so they've you know. created a model a virtual model of the cathedral before the fire Uh and that is stitching together not only the model from 2010 but also later scans that were made of portions of the building Uh as far as i know there was only one complete scan made of the building and that was this one in 2010 Uh but it wasn't complete in the sense of it didn't go into the roof in every detail and there were later scans for Uh instance that Uh had focused on the roof so this brings together all of that data into one model and it's a sort of beautiful it's almost like a reliquary in the sense that Uh you can imagine, you know, <laughs> one gem being brought from one source, yes, and another uh, gem yeah, being brought uh, yeah, from another dignitary, yeah. and here you have this beautiful reliquary that's created. Yeah. And the fact that it is this point cloud, also, there's a sort of ghostly yes. uh, quality to it as yeah, well. It's, it's very beautiful. Very it has its own yes, aesthetic. Yeah, yeah,
0: interesting. Yeah. Interesting, you know, we talked about Andrew being a kind of master of many disciplines, and this was one of them, this, uh, you know, mm-hmm. this knowledge of this technology, and the fact that it could be applied to Gothic structures. I mean, he was not only interested in acoustics and uh, religion and architecture, but he's interested in the latest digital technology and mapping techniques. So
1: This is true and he found his match in Stephen Murray who uh-huh. had also been pioneering a lot of these technologies at Columbia uh-huh. and it's a really lucky thing that they happened to find one another, I have no. to say, and, and certainly both have made my life much better than it yeah. would have been otherwise.
0: Murray's lab there, I remember, it was one of the first digital humanities mm-hmm. labs on any campus. So you've got a whole chapter on bells, which I, I was just yeah. uh, thought that was quite beautiful and really interesting. And I wonder if you could just talk about the bells. I mean, what's a cathedral without its bells? Yes. So uh,
1: exactly. You know. Yes, I, I was going to say, you know, at least the book doesn't have a Quasimodo figure, yeah. uh, <laughs> but at least it has plenty, plenty of bells, yeah, right? Yeah, and. It's true that the bells really structured daily life in medieval Paris uh-huh. to a certain extent. For the average Parisian, if you were a worker, you would have been able to sort of structure your day to know when to, you know, get to work and when to go home based on the the toll of the bells, as well as importantly, the liturgical life for the clergy. Yeah. So you would be able to determine the solemnity of an occasion based on, you know, a, a more solemn occasion would demand more bells, uh-huh, right? It's more more yeah. cowbell here, I'm thinking of that yeah. the, the SNL sketch. <laughs> and there were many, many different bells of different sizes. So th- each of them would have a name. So you uh-huh. might think of Big Ben. Well, yes, you know, yeah, we had uh, Big yeah. Marie and uh-huh, others, yeah, right, uh-huh, at Notre yeah. Dame of Paris. And uh, there was a choreography that went along with this. And there were, there is no sort of named quasi-moto figure, but actually there were individuals. Uh-huh. I'm very interested in these figures, the, uh-huh. the kind of bell ringers. They were called church wardens. Uh-huh. And there were lay church wardens who were responsible for Notre Dame. And there are actually lots of records that survived from their duties. Uh-huh. And so that's actually, I have a plan in the future. This was something that I came upon during my dissertation research and, and going to eventually get back to, but really to sort of unpack all of this document, uh-huh. um, which is a really remarkable thing at the archive. So it's certainly referenced in saint and Talon's book uh-huh. as well. And yeah. we're lucky to sort of have that resource. It's how we know so much about the individual bells and how much complexity there was. And of course, bells sh- still do survive at the cathedral, but they're mostly from later periods, uh-huh. not these same medieval bells, yeah. although often refounded. So in some cases, the material may still be the same, but uh-huh. but they're made bigger and better yeah. um, in later generations. Yeah,
0: quite a technology making a bell, wasn't it? They were made Absolutely. on site, right? So, mm-hmm. uh and then these figures, these bell ringers, some of them are rather shady figures, from what I can gather. <laughs> yeah, you know, so interesting people. But
1: uh, well, and they had access to the building as well. Uh, so I mean, yeah. that certainly would have been a concern if ever yeah. there was, as there sometimes was. You know, um, would yeah. be robbers and things. They yeah. could at least be blamed. Uh, they could at least be the scapegoat. Oh,
0: okay. Yeah, poor Quasimodo. So can can you talk about then also, apart from the bells, of course, what would a a cathedral be without its relics and all the liturgy that surrounds a relic? So can you talk about processions, relics, that kind of life that exudes out of the cathedral into Paris?
1: Yes. So the cathedral possessed many important relics, including the relics of Saint Marcel, who protected Paris from a dragon, of all things, back in the old time. And he was a bishop of Paris and became almost the sort of guiding figure, the model, the sort of archetype for the later bishop of Paris. And so you find, for instance, a Trumeau figure in the west portals. You find one of these Trumeau figures depicts Saint Marcel. And so his remains were in the building, and there was a great shrine that contained the remains of Saint Marcel. And that would have been involved in many processions that also would have traveled to other neighboring and in some cases sort of rival institutions like the Church of Saint Geneviève, the Abbey Church of Saint Geneviève, which itself had you know St. Genevieve, the patron saint of Paris. Her relics were there and so that they would be brought together with the relics of St. Marcel. There were also important, more sort of universal relics at Notre Dame of Paris, including a relic of the True Cross. Mm-hmm. which that predates by about a 100 years the passion relics that mm-hmm. Louis IX then acquired. Uh-huh. And so it would have been, at that point, a, very, a particularly important relic, and it was diminished somewhat in importance with the arrival of the crown of thorns and uh-huh. the other passion relics uh-huh. that arrived in the 13th century. So these certainly would have structured the liturgical life inside the cathedral, but as you say, also through processions would have brought the cathedral to the public in many ways in grand, elaborate, but also very, as we were talking about earlier, hierarchical professions Uh as well. So we have for instance, festival views where you can see the exact order of the clergy from not only the cathedral but also other religious institutions around the city, Uh in addition to this hierarchy of which shrine gets to go first Uh what what comes before what So for those who are interested in the British monarchy and its pageantry, there was a lot more of this, of course, Uh in medieval Paris than there is today.
0: (laughs) These relics are sources of actual power, aren't they? I mean, when Louis acquires the crown of thorns, it allows him to create a nation state. I remember learning that medieval history 101 and in a sense he's able to accrue all kinds of glory to himself in doing Mm -hmm. this so uh, and then there are people buried in the cathedral right there are tombs
1: absolutely and this is something that may come as a bit of a surprise because so few of these effigies survived so they were really mostly cleared out either in before the revolution or in the revolutionary period and after that and so they would have really lined the walls and the, been embedded into the floors as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. And many canons, we, we have a lot of records of this because there were drawings produced around 1700 of a lot of these tombs. I've become very interested in those. And we see much as the sort of one master mason would respond to another, we see also there's a real continuity when it comes to the structure of all of these tombs. Mm-hmm. So you might have two tombs that were designed hundreds of years apart. Where actually stylistically there have been many changes over that, the course of that uh, time. When it comes to these tombs, there's a clear sense that one person is trying to present an um, uninterrupted line back to earlier their predecessors, in some cases their family members uh, who had been uh-huh. canons before them. Yeah. So there's a real sense of continuity when yeah. it comes to the visuals of those tombs, yeah. which seems really sort of remarkable and unusual in this period of art history, let's say.
0: Yeah, they're a mechanism for establishing lineage, for one thing. The side chapels, I want to ask you about those where there are often tombs, uh, and you know they're a common feature of cathedrals. If you go into New York and take a stroll through St. John the Divine, as you look to the sides, you see many chapels, and you can have a mass in any one of these chapels. You don't have to have it in the central part of the church in the choir or the nave. Does it have anything to do with this cult of the dead that's developed?
1: Absolutely. So that's exactly it. As chantry masses are set up, that's Uh um, exactly the period when you have the addition of these chapels in the 13th century and then also effigies placed Uh in them too. So there were certain dignitaries, the bishop, and anyone from the royal household who was in one way or another attached to the cathedral could be buried in the choir proper, so the actual liturgical choir where the choir stalls were placed. But everyone else, Clearly, because we have basically maps that tell us Mm -hmm. where individual tombs were, everybody else was not allowed to be in that space. So you needed to find space elsewhere that also wasn't sort of underfoot. Mm -hmm. And this is also why chapels are, in terms of the kind of architectural space that's created in the building, that's Mm -hmm. part of the reason that you need these side chapels as opposed to just the existing pavement right in the nave, in the ambulatory, Mm -hmm. places where people would have placed their feet Mm -hmm. as they traveled through the building.
0: So the cathedral is a big part of the cultural and political life of Paris and of France itself, and you see this especially. I mean, we know Notre Dame in part because of Quasimodo and and Hugo's novel Mm -hmm. uh, through the Revolution and into the nineteenth century, when it kind of takes on a new life in the imagination of the ordinary French citizen, uh, partly because of this literature. So, can you talk about the Revolution and the place the Mm -hmm. cathedral holds in Revolution, and then what happens in the aftermath in terms of the, the vandalism that takes? place, but also all the re- restoration.
1: Yes, yeah, so the revolutionary period is a complicated one at the Cathedral of Paris, because mm-hmm. there's a sense on the part of the revolutionaries, they do want to destroy the symbols of the monarchy. Mm-hmm. Now, well, there are symbols of monarchs
2: mm-hmm.
1: on the Cathedral of Paris, including the Gallery of Kings on yeah. the West Front, so right. when we see it today, we'll, we'll still see a, a group of statues, very sort of colossal statues of kings, on the exterior in a strip on the west end of the building. Those, That's a restoration of the original statues because in that very period it was believed that these were representations of Capetian kings, mm-hmm. that these were really truly depictions of French kings and they needed to be dispensed with. So this is not just a matter of vandals sort of climbing up to that gallery level and hacking away at these sculptures with hammers. That image has certainly emerged, and there was a lot of propaganda at the time that that caused that to be the case. Mm -hmm. In fact, it was administrators, right? It was a kind of municipal authority who was charged with dismantling those sculptures, so Mm -hmm. took them down. And then they were just placed sort of left to rot on the plaza in front of the cathedral. And they had been turned, you know, really, as you can imagine, of any sort of urban detritus, they become used in the way that Urban detritus becomes used as urinals uh-huh, and such, yeah, uh-huh. and eventually they had to be taken away. Now, the amazing thing about these particular symbols, at least, is that a royalist picked some of these pieces up,
2: mm-hmm.
1: gave them essentially a proper burial <laughs> in a courtyard, yeah. And, and when a bank building was being constructed in the 1970s, these were actually uncovered uh-huh. as if, you know, the remains, yeah. human remains, right, in it, yeah. that you might uncover at a site as you go to build a new building. And so they're now on display in the Musee de Cluny, and you can compare, you know, what they originally looked like with how the restoration architect sort of imagined what they might look like. Mm-hmm. But the strange thing about this is, as far as we can tell, when these sculptures were created in the 13th century, they were meant really to represent the Old Testament kings, But the fact is, there is an ambivalence here because the way they were dressed, right, looks for all the world like a Caucasian king. uh And so this is always a bit of ambivalence about this. And we actually do have firsthand accounts, primary sources that suggest that these had long been interpreted as images of Capetian kings. This was Uh not just some creation of the late 18th century. So it it makes a certain amount of sense. But in other ways, I was saying that Notre Dame was a complicated symbol in this period because on the other hand, they didn't just sack the building entirely. They didn't burn it to the Uh ground. There is still a sense that this is going to be maintained. And so it is put into disuse, but it also eventually becomes a temple of reason for a period. And that's the period really before where there's a a sense of sort of we can repurpose this structure in our new worldview. So there was a still a kind of Preservationist impulse, even in that period of destruction and iconoclasm, which I find really remarkable. And I think that really speaks volumes to the way the building has resonated since the fire as well. I think uh-huh. people don't understand even how much they're attached to it until it's threatened in that uh-huh, way. Yeah. And I suspect yeah. something along those lines must have happened in the revolutionary period as uh, well. Yeah,
0: interesting. So one of the people that came to the rescue was Viollet Le Duc and also his comrade, Lassus. Lassus, yes,
2: um, yes.
0: And they undertook a huge restoration, so much so that some people will tell you that Notre Dame of Paris is a 19th century building. Um, right. But uh, anyway, is there anything to be learned here as we approach the rebuilding of the cathedral after the fire from Viollet Le Duc? And maybe mistakes he made, maybe, maybe things that he did right. Uh, I don't know. I've always been a yeah. fan of his because of his work in Carcassonne, which some medievalists uh-huh. will tell you it's a Disney plant. It doesn't have anything to do with a medieval <laughs> city, but but it's a wonderful place.
1: Absolutely, I remember visiting that site with through Math and Gothic France uh-huh. actually, which is an amazing thing to remember. Lessons and Gilles Le Duc, they're key and controversial figures. I mean, for some reasons you've already articulated, and I would say we have a lot to learn from them in this period. For one thing. There's still the sort of model, the first restoration architects in a certain way when it uh-huh. comes to historic preservation in France. Uh-huh. The people who now call themselves architect in chief of various cathedrals throughout the country, they really descend from Villiers de duc and La mm-hmm. in a certain way, and so. In that sense, there's a kind of continuity there, a a sense of walking in his footsteps, I suppose, that that any architect-in-chief has to feel to a certain degree, and I'm sure Philippe Villeneuve would feel that way. Uh He certainly feels the weight of his profession, you can tell that. One thing that was extremely important that was done in that restoration was the very careful archaeological analysis of the building Uh as it was before the restoration began. And this is something that I think is, sometimes forgotten, when you focus on the fact that the result was sometimes a bit Disney when it comes to the Uh American or Lassus or his compatriots, you might overlook the fact that actually a lot of this began with very careful study of the edifice as it was, and also sort of remains around the site excavating nearby to find any traces of earlier states of the building. So we still have this sense, I mean, it's in some ways what this book is doing as well, Uh peeling back the historical layers That's what Vila the Duke was all about. It's something Uh that he was doing. He went a little too far in some cases. I think we can agree. He discovered, for instance, that the building was once a four-story elevation and had been changed to a three-story elevation Uh in the 13th century. So today, what we would do with that information is we would publish that in an article. And what Vila the Duke did was he unrestored by, you know, through his restoration, unrestored back Uh to its original iteration Parts of the structure. Just so part, in the crossing, so you we can see, still fuck. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so. so that you have a sort of sample. Uh-huh. But I think it was a very sort of dramatic gesture uh-huh. to actually uh-huh. use 19th century stone to replace 13th century stone uh-huh. to show us something about the 12th century. Uh-huh. It's a really yeah. dramatic move on his part. Yeah. Another thing that we, I think, have to call into question right now is the spire. I think this is a big problem that the architects who are working on the site now have to contend with. There was a spire built in the thirteenth century in Notre Dame and it was dismantled in the eighteenth century. So that was not there when Lesus and Ville le Duc began their work. In their project for the restoration, they had in mind a spire that looked really very much like the old one, like the hmm. old Notre Dame spire which yeah. had been dismantled. So there were graphic representations of it. It was, you know, sort of slender and, and yeah. small. And then over time, emboldened by, I mean, really the carte blanche that they received from the government and all of the funding that they had, it got bigger and bigger and Mm -hmm. bigger. And eventually, ultimately, the one that was built looks a lot more like the spire at Amiens Cathedral from Uh the 15th century, which itself, if you'll notice, at Amiens, the spire sort of tilts one way. Uh Um, So it's it's a precarious structure itself. Uh It's just sort of, it's overbuilt in a certain way. So I think that is a question that needs to be posed is, because it became a projectile during the yeah. 2019 fire and it is really what exposed the interior of the building when the spire crashed through the crossing vault the stone vault uh-huh. that's what exposed the entire core the inside of the building to the fire if it had not been oh, for the spire collapsing then that fire could have been contained in the roof structure itself above the stone bolts entirely. Uh So I do think that that's something that needs to be addressed as a cause for concern, even though it doesn't mean that they shouldn't rebuild this fire just as it looked before the fire. The building has not always been that way. So I think it is something that should be taken into Uh account in the restoration.
0: So last question, taking a sort of pause and looking back on what was accomplished here with uh, Notre Dame, I move to ask a question, you know, what is this thing in the history of Europe and the history of humanity in general? I mean, what is Notre Dame? What influence has it had on us through history, either on other structures and works of art, on technologies of building, or on consciousness itself? I mean, do you ask yourself those kinds of questions while you're working here with God? architecture.
1: I do. I mean, I I particularly asked this question since the fire because I was really astonished by the response, the Uh emotional response to it. And I think when I finally figured out that it was an emotional response, that we had, like it or not, and people who had not seen the building and people from all over the world who had seen it once on a, you know, a honeymoon trip decades before, have formed an emotional connection to this structure now part of that is because of its location and the fact that after the revolution of 1789 france became more centralized than ever and so paris has become much more central than it was even in the middle ages and so some of that comes from our sort of modern perception of the building but then if you look back and back and back you realize that people have been forming this kind of emotional connection to the building for a very long time Mm -hmm. and while that network has expanded you know exponentially through technology, through easy access to these buildings, through the internet, and also through inexpensive travel. But it's also been going on for a really long time. So I think understanding that it was an emotional connection, it's not just me who has an emotional connection to this building. I mean, I have—I would say it's in some ways a kind of, like any sacred space, I suppose, but I mean, when this fire occurred, for, for instance, I realized that I would have much preferred my own house Mm -hmm. to catch fire. And I think many people felt this way then for that to have happened to this building. And it's not just because it's my particular object of study. I study other things too. So it's not just that. But there's something that's really just very central about it. And I still sort of wonder at this. But I think that the emotional part of this is a piece that shouldn't be ignored in all of these debates about its meaning and its centrality. So I think to me, that's the, the basic thing. On a kind of structural level, of course, it's one step along the way. It's bigger, it's grander, it's taller in its moment at a time that France is being formed. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, too, it's, it's extremely important historically. But I think as it goes on, it's also that there's been this sort of continuity of life in this building that is particularly true in Paris because it's really been uninterrupted. Mm-hmm. When you visit other cathedrals, of course, there will still be a cathedral clergy there, and you may still you know, attract a certain number of people, but it does not maintain the kind of everyday life that yeah. tourists allow Notre Dame to still like, yeah. a sort of occupy in consciousness of the world. Yeah. So I think that's really part of it. All of the people who make it what it is, that's a really important element here. But I mean, it's been really heartening also, on the other hand. I mean, certainly there's a a bright side here, which is that scholars have come together in a way I have never seen before since Uh 2019, including Uh people who have not worked on this building for a while or Uh ever in some cases, right? Bringing their, their expertise, even if it comes from a slightly different place, And so not only do you have that, but you also have this historic preservation arm and you have the actual conservators working on site. And just the amount of diligent work that's taking place right now is is really, really, really exciting to see. Mm. And so I do believe, I mean, I think there's still a big question to be asked about what the building will look like in five or 10 years. Uh And there are fights to be had, and it seems like some of those are brewing already. But I have no doubt that it's nice to see that people are really coming together and learning as much as they can from this building, much as Les Seuss and Billy the Duke did in the 19th century.
0: We'll see uh, what happens. One thing, it did take a long time to build uh, to begin with, of course, and I think it's going to take <laughs> a long time to repair, so, so we'll have time Indeed. to think about it. yeah. yeah. So. Okay, so I just want to say thank you very much, Lindsay, for this wonderful talk on Notre Dame Cathedral. The book we've been talking about is Notre Dame Cathedral, Nine Centuries of History, authored by Danny Sandron and Andrew Tallon and translated here by Lindsay Cook, published by Penn State University Press. So anyway, just want to thank you for coming on the show again, Lindsay, and and I really enjoyed this.
1: Thanks so much for having me.